0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. You okay? Yes. Good. Everyone feels a little bit chilly and maybe sleepy this morning. Maybe it's the weather. Um, We need a bit of northern fire, don't we, Jerry, to wake us up this morning. And mushy peas. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, You and I have an enemy, the enemy of the human race known as the devil or Satan, the accuser, the enemy of the church who would want to divide and destroy and discredit the work of God. And th- today, this morning, I'm going to be talking about Jesus as the conqueror of Satan. All term, this term, we've been looking at Jesus, our centerpiece, the centerpiece of the Christian message, the centerpiece of our lives. But Jesus is often pictured as being quite a mild-mannered, effeminate man who floats six inches above the ground, is on first name terms with the plants. He's not pictured as being particularly tough. He might be wise in most people's eyes, but he's certainly not a man's man. Often people picture Jesus as being the sort of person who would feel very uncomfortable on a building site and out of place. But that's not the Jesus that we find in this book. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus, as a man was not intimidated by other men. He would often confront people, he would resist temptation, and he would speak fiercely and courageously towards his opponents. Uh, The Grammy award-winning rapper, uh, a guy named Lecrae, says that before he became a Christian, that's how he thought of Jesus. He said, I always thought that Jesus was this fluffy lamb of a man who would walk around saying, I love you, my children, and bless you. And then one day he heard about the Jesus of the Bible and heard that Jesus at his death or before his crucifixion was pummeled within an inch of his life. He was forced to carry his own splintering cross up a hill towards his own place of execution where they drove railroad spike-sized nails into his forearms and into his shins. And Lecrae said, remember hearing someone talk about this and say, how dare you call my Jesus a punk? He said, Jesus is a tough guy. He was sensitive, but he was like a lot of you tough guys in the crowd. Lecrae says that he prayed one night in a church service. And he said at that moment, it was as though all of the anger and baggage that he'd been carrying around just dissipated and went out of him. He felt like someone had cleaned the ugliest and innermost parts of himself. The parts that even he was too ashamed to admit that he was like. That's what Jesus does for people. Jesus confronts our sin, our wickedness, our brokenness, our shame, and he overcomes it and brings healing and freedom and release. Jesus is a conqueror, a conqueror like that that no one else in history has been able to master. Alexander the Great may have conquered much of the Middle East and Europe. Genghis Khan may have conquered much of Asia, but Jesus has conquered the entire world there are churches on every continent in every corner of the planet a third of the population on the earth will identify themselves as being followers of Jesus of some description calling themselves Christians but the difference between military conquerors and Jesus is that Jesus conquered not with a sword but with a message of love Jesus conquered not with force but by laying his life down for the world and Jesus conquers still today Today, he breaks down stubborn hearts and rebellious minds, he converts atheists, and he rescues even the most wayward and destructive of sinners. And so today, we're going to consider this Jesus, our conqueror, and how he conquered the greatest enemy of all, the enemy of the human race, the devil. And I want to show you why that's such good news for us. But first of all, let's ask the question, how does Jesus conquer the devil? Well, he conquers in in three ways. And it might not be in the ways that we would expect because we're used to films and stories about good versus evil and it's pictured with physical fights and conflict and magic spells and explosions and Jesus doesn't conquer in that way. We see in the life of Jesus him conquering the devil firstly by rejecting the devil's lies. In John chapter 8 verse 44 it says this, Jesus, talking about the devil, said that the devil's a murderer from the beginning and has, no, has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus conquered the devil by rejecting the devil's lies, by exposing them for what they were. Jesus obeyed God's word throughout his life. He trusts the words of God, like Robert was encouraging us to do in the worship. Jesus trusted God, despite temptations to do the opposite. And that's hard for us. If you've ever tried it, to just obey God and do what his word says, that's hard for us. All of us are heavily influenced by the culture and the society that we live in. We're deceived by the ideas that are popular from one generation to the next. Even a, even a developed economy in a modern society like 1940s Germany could produce something like the Holocaust because we're so easily held captive by the ideas of our day, not so with Jesus. For us, we are convinced, at least in the way we behave, that the consumerist's doctrine is right, that we are largely those who consume and take and devour the earth. Or we might be convinced by the secularist's doctrine that we can live without God and find ultimate happiness and meaning without God in the world. But that's not true. The Bible says that we're made to serve one another, to serve God, to devote ourselves to one another, devote ourselves to God, to trust God. Jesus conquered the devil by rejecting the devil's lies. Secondly, he conquered the devil by destroying the devil's works. In 1 John 3 verse 8, it says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, to undo the devil's activities on the earth. And when you read the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what you see. You see him healing sick people, You see him casting out demonic influences from people. You see him freeing captives. And the the underlying statement behind it that John makes for us is that as he's doing that, he's destroying the works of the devil. Jesus said that the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to rob life. He comes to bind people up in sickness and in captivity. Jesus, on on the other hand, comes to undo those things. And he's doing that today. He's still destroying the devil's works in that way. Whenever someone turns to Jesus, becomes a follower of his. Whenever someone gets baptized as an expression of their devotion to Jesus. Whenever someone is healed in in answer to prayer in Jesus' name. Whenever someone is set free from destructive habits or from negative thought patterns. Whenever a person is free from demonic activity... Jesus is destroying the devil's work in that person's life. And and thirdly, Jesus conquered the devil by destroying the devil himself. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, it said that the reason Jesus became a man and took on flesh and blood like us is so that through death, through dying a human death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And in so doing then, deliver, rescue all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps human beings. Jesus died in order that he would destroy the devil. There's this popular idea out there that, that hell is a place where the devil rules and reigns. That's not true. For one thing, the Bible says that hell hasn't been created yet, but will be created at the end as a place to finally destroy the devil and his angels and all those, if you like, who are held captive by him, who are cut off from God. Jesus comes to destroy, to conquer the devil, and he does that by rejecting the devil's lies, by destroying the works of the devil, and by destroying the devil himself. He's able to take on our ultimate enemy and he defeats him. He conquered him. Jesus is the conqueror of Satan. And in many respects, the reason why we're doing this series called Centerpiece, the reason why for the past, I don't know, eight or nine weeks, we've been looking at the person of Jesus is for us at the start of 2018 to ground ourselves and to say we're a church that follows him. He's our champion. He's our hero. He's our hope. It's not you. I'm not looking to you to be the perfect person. You're not able to be the perfect spouse or or son or daughter or friend. You make mistakes. Church is not primarily about you and your goodness and glory. And if only you could get your act together, we'd be a better people. Church is about him. We are his people being called out to worship him, to be devoted to him. Jesus is our champion. He's our David who's destroyed the ultimate Goliath. In this past week, a friend, a friend of mine was telling me something that happened. Uh, he's a pastor in a church in London, and they had someone from the community phone up and say, we've been experiencing all kinds of paranormal activity in our house. Could someone come from the church and do some ghost busting? or words to that effect so he thought well, I've, I've never done that before but all right he went around chatted to them and said that it's become so bad that the grandkids don't want to stay in the house anymore they're scared they feel like they've seen images of people in the windows at night and the husband he said to my friend he said look I'm the kind of guy who I don't believe anything unless I see it but even I'm pretty freaked out with the sound of footsteps in the hallway and stuff that we just can't explain please could you do something You know when things are bad, when a man like that says, I need some help. Um, Would would someone from the church be able to help? And so my friend prayed for them, prayed over the house, just asked God to bless them, told them about Jesus as the conqueror of Satan. And then he got a phone call a week later and said that for the first time in months, they'd not experienced any paranormal activity in the house. They were giving credit to Jesus as the conqueror of Satan. Now, when we think about the devil, that's often the kind of story that you hear and go, oh, that's, that's paranormal. That's unusual. That's the devil's domain. Whereas actually, Jesus, as we've seen, conquers the devil in all different ways. It's not just in the obviously paranormal and supernatural. It's in the lies that you and I believe that Jesus comes to undo. It's in the activity of the devil on the earth, and it's in the devil lording it over us making us believe that he's in charge of death itself and that we're to be terrified of him whereas Jesus has entered the grave and to destroy the devil. And so for the rest of this morning, what I want us to do is just to read from the first few pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis, And we're going to look at Adam and Eve and the story there and see what we can learn, not just about the devil, but about the human race and about our conqueror and why that's good news for us. So if you have a Bible and want to turn with me, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 this morning. I'm going to read from Genesis 2 to 15, 17, and then we'll jump a bit. So um, follow along if you can. It says, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And so God creates Eve. He blesses them, gives us the institution of marriage before the fool, before anything, I know this might surprise some of us, before the fall, before it all goes wrong, there was marriage. Um, it was only after the fall that things got difficult, but that's what he does. He gives them Adam and Eve together, commissions them, gives them marriage, something that you can't mess with. It comes from before, time in memoriam. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now a lot of stories begin this way, don't they? We meet the protagonist, we meet his opponent, the scene is set for us, a challenge is introduced that's big enough that we as the viewer or the listener, we want to find out what's going on and that's what we've got here. We've got Adam who's been given a garden to conquer or to nurture. He has to master the art of bringing beauty out of mess and order out of chaos. That's what gardening is. And he has to do all of that while being aware of and on the lookout for a snake. That's what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God then. God at creation in chapter 1, he takes mess and disorder and chaos and he orders it into something sustainable, that lasts and holds together. God is the first gardener, and he says to Adam, now you're going to basically represent me, and what I did with the universe, you're going to do with this patch of ground. Like, I had the entire cosmos, you just look after this little bit. And God did it in the presence of the devil and the fallen angels. The Bible makes it clear that the angels were created before the universe was created. And the devil's just an angel among many who decided in his heart, I want to be better than God. I want to rule in God's place. So he was thrown out of heaven, became a fallen angel as we call him. That's what it means to be human then, is to represent God. What God does to creation, we do with the creations of our own. And life is like that still. There are challenges that we have to overcome. There are the weeds that grow in our lives the gardens that we're trying to bring order to and then there is the evil or the malevolence that works against us maybe from within or from without so you can work for years to nurture a healthy marriage only then to have a snake turn your partner's head or you can spend a decade gaining a good reputation at work only to have a coworker undo in a moment a lifetime's work with a false accusation or something there are weeds that we're to watch out for and guard, and then there are snakes, evil in the world, that we're to be on our guard against. From just from these first verses, what is it that we can say about the devil, our enemy already? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that he's crafty. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The snake, our enemy, is crafty. Snakes are hard to spot. And they're difficult to overcome. A friend of mine said when he was at school in Zimbabwe, uh, one of his schoolmates was running through the grass one day and got bitten by a snake and died on the way to hospital because he was too far away to get aid. In a moment, the snake, with its craftiness hiding in the grass, robbed him of his life. That's what the snake does. And the image of a snake or a serpent or dragon has long been associated with evil in the world. Those those dark, lifeless, black eyes that creep and hide in rooms where you can't see them, or in the undergrowth. Or Snakes don't often hide in rooms, do they? Hiding in the trees um, can strike in an instant and undo a life. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. wears a mask he hides as an angel of light he looks like someone who's desirable and good he's crafty in that sense the bible says that the devil sets traps for people and actually in two corinthians paul writes to the church and he says you must forgive one another so that we aren't outwitted by satan's schemes He recognizes that in unforgiveness, there's a a bitterness in a church, in in a heart, that makes room for the devil and his schemes. The devil's crafty. He's not often easy to spot. I mean, there's the obvious things that you might see to do with the occult or the Ouija board, witches and demons and ghosts and darkness. But the devil's crafty. And he often looks very different from that in the way that he might come to us. The questions often asked, well, what is evil? And that's a, a, a question to wrestle with and to chew over around a, a beer with some friends on a, in a, on a pub one evening. Now, on the one hand, evil is just simply the absence of God. God is the perf- image of perfection and good. And anything that isn't then perfect and good is evil, if it's not of God. In that sense, evil is like Uh, uh, it is like a hole in a sock it's an absence of the sock if you see what I'm saying Um, that's perhaps a strange analogy but it's not just the absence of good it's also a personality and a force for evil malevolence itself is not just the absence of good but is the presence of something else so in that sense it's the sock turned snake puppet if you see where I'm going with this maybe I'm not even sure I am But the devil is crafty. It's both the absence of God and the presence of something else. And he's been crafty for a millennia. This was written at the origin of the human race. He's been tricking people and hiding in the long grass for thousands of years. And what are you, 20, 40, 60 years young? And you think you can be aware of and spot Satan's schemes? We're to be on our guard against his craftiness. He comes to discredit what God's doing. He comes to divide churches. He comes to cause gossiping and infighting. He comes to plant doubts that, that just sit there for, for months and years in a, at a time so that we can't trust God and don't ever take risks. He comes to rob us of our joy. And too often Christians just get used to low expectations when it comes to life and the Christian life. We don't fight for things in prayer. We don't believe for things with faith. We don't give sacrificially because we've listened to the voice of caution and care for so long. The devil Is crafty we're to be on our guard. Let's carry on reading. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. We want to be invincible. I speak for myself, if not for you, I want to be invincible. We convince ourselves and others, the way that we live, our social media, we like to present this image of perfection. We've got it all together. There's no flaws here. We want to be godlike in the way that we're perceived by others, in the way that we live. More than that, we want to decide for ourselves what's good and evil. That's the root of our age, isn't it? Let's just question everything. I mean, the root of our age is actually more, if we're just evolved animals and we've just led by desires, then everyone's desires and appetites are different. Therefore, who's to say what's right and wrong? Therefore, we can decide for ourselves what's good and what's evil. That's what we want to do. That's what Eve wants to do here. You can decide for yourself. More than that, we want secret insights. We want to pry. We don't want there to be any secrets. That's why we created Google, so we can know everything. Because we believe that we can be saved if we just knew a little bit more. We could undo death. We could undo the curse of our bodies if we just knew more. Actually, interestingly, that's the root of the occult. The occult just means hidden. It's the hidden things. The reason things like seances or Ouija boards or spiritualism or talking to the dead, the reason that's wrong is because it's prying into things that are hidden and secret from us. And it's us desiring a knowledge and an access to a godlike awareness of reality that's not been permitted to us. But the serpent, knowing that we want those things, he plays on that desire. He manipulates Eve. He wants Eve to believe that God is restrictive by nature. And not permissive by nature. Whereas the text is quite clear that the word any appears before but. So when God tells Adam, you may surely eat of every or any tree of the garden. That comes first. But don't eat that one because you'll die. And it's, it's not an arbitrary, just meaningless command for the sake of, because God likes rules. And I better invent a rule to make sure they stay on track. It's a rule that comes out of a relationship in the way that I would say to my wife, you can talk to any boy in the world, but please don't kiss anyone but me. It's that kind of a rule. You can do all kinds of things, but not this, because if you do this, it'll damage us. Trust me in that. It's a rule designed because of relationship. But the result of Satan's manipulation and questioning of God causes Eve to look with fresh eyes on the creation. She looks again at the tree. (laughs) That's what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. I mean, she'd probably seen it before and seen that it was good for food. But now that the the thought has been planted, a wedge has been driven between her and God. Ah, Can you really trust him after all? He is a restrictive God, isn't he? He is just trying to ruin your fun And trying to shut down your thirst for knowledge. He's trying to limit you. She looks again and again. And sees maybe I could look to the creation to satisfy me. And not the creator. That's what this is about. The world around me, perhaps that's all I need for life and contentment. And not God himself. And we build a philosophy on that. It's how we interact with the world. I don't need God. I have the world around me. So the devil is crafty. He manipulates and he promises things. But what about Adam and Eve? Well, you might say they're naive for one. She engages in the serpent's reasoning for another. I mean, if, if a snake talks to you, the first thing you should do is just like, walk away or stamp on the snake or something. Rather than engaging with this and thinking, I can, replying was Eve's first mistake here, wasn't it? Imagine how differently the world would have gone if the snake said, and she went, "Uh, Adam, and he went, sorry, deal with that. And then just on they went. But instead, she thinks, do you know what? I can handle this. I can reply to this. She fancied herself perhaps as someone who's pure enough to be able to engage with the serpent's reasoning. I can handle this. It's just a snake. I know God. So she flirted with the temptation. She thought herself to be above the command that God had given or understood the command enough that she could debate it. She was wise in her own eyes in that sense. And we're like this. That's why the story's here to say this is like, you're like this. There are representative heads of the human race basically to say you're like them. That's where your nature comes from. We hear stories of people who shipwreck their lives or abandon their faith, who chase after romance at the expense of God and trusting God or sex or money or power and we think that won't happen for me. I know those people have sought security in those things but I wouldn't. I would always behave honestly and trust God with my life. But still we, we think well I can reply to that text message, that won't hurt. Or I can not you know mention that thing that I claimed in my expenses or I can put that one through we can sail close to sin we tell ourselves it's what we can do I can reason with evil we can reply we try to overcome it just one bite just one look just one drink it's fine Adam and Eve are naive but you shouldn't be There's been thousands of years of human history to make the point. You cannot resist evil. There is a a malevolence and an evil in us and out there that would make it impossible for you to trust God. Interestingly, soldiers who go away to war and come back and experience high levels of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, the psychologists say that one of the main causes of PTSD is when a soldier sees himself or herself do something that they never thought they would have ever done. And they, try, they can't reconcile that version of themselves with the peacetime version of themselves. And they're traumatized by this image of themselves doing something grossly violent or evil or disgusting and enjoying it and finding some pleasure in it or becoming an animal or embracing some brutal part of them. And then in normal life, they are traumatized, as I said, as a result of that because... They've swallowed the lie, like all of us have, that evil people look very different from you and me. Evil people have suspiciously, have have moustaches that look slightly like Charlie Chaplin or suspiciously like Charlie Chaplin. Or evil people live in castles or they work in laboratories and they have evil laughs. And I'm not an evil person. I wouldn't do that. There's a a story that came out of the... um, the Nuremberg Trials after uh, World War II, where they were trying the Nazi war criminals. And um, one Jewish survivor, whose name is, escapes me now, he, there's a video of him in, in court, ready to give evidence against one of the Nazi soldiers who'd imprisoned him. And as the man walks into the prison, uh, walks into the courtyard, sorry, the courtroom, we'll get there, as the man walks into the courtroom, the videos of this Jewish guy who's about to testify, falls off his chair just in horror and weeping and clearly traumatized by the sight of this man. And years later, he was interviewed on television and asked, why did you behave like that when you saw him walk into the room? And his reply was interesting. He said, when he walked into the room, I saw a man who looked just like me. I expected to see a monster, but I saw someone too close to my own self. And it terrified him because he saw the evil in himself. and we might say of Adam and Eve, of course they were naive, because they hadn't eaten the fruit that had given her enlightenment. But to believe that is actually to buy into the serpent's lie, that we need to take forbidden things in order to become fully human, to become wise. It's to say that there's wisdom outside of knowing God. So that's perhaps what we can say about Adam and Eve and the serpent, but what then about our conqueror and Jesus? Let's read the last few verses together. Verse 14 to 15. Then the Lord God, so they eat the the fruit. The Lord comes, where are you? What have you done? Oh no, we ate the fruit. You're in trouble. Then the Lord brings some judgment on the situation. And he says to the serpent, because you have done this, What we see in God, in contrary to the serpent's accusation, in the, is that God is not a killjoy. who's out to destroy life and fun and freedom. We see that the moment our first human parents sinned, at that very moment, the promise comes of rescue one day. And we also learn that the hero in this story isn't Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and Eve versus the snake. It's actually the snake against the offspring of Eve. See, if the first humans couldn't defeat evil, what makes you think that you can? You can't. You can't withstand the enemy's attacks on your life. It's impossible. And so what happened is a promise was brought that one day a rescuer will come from the line of Eve who will stamp on your head, who will do what Adam should have done in the beginning. You'll bite his heel, you'll wound him, but he'll kill you. He'll destroy you. And then this is what happens with the woman and the man. Then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to God, this way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve sent into the wilderness to die the serpent had lied to them eat of this and you'll live forever you'll be like God no they weren't they died out in the wilderness is exactly where Jesus went after his baptism as a man in the desert away from the blessing of God at his baptism and it was there that the devil came to Jesus and he tempted him in a similar way to the way that he tempted Eve Turn this stone into bread. In other words, look to the creation to satisfy you. You don't need God. You've got stones. Make them into bread and you'll be fine. You'll survive. He says, I'll give you godlike status if only you bow down and worship me. If you bow down and worship me, the devil says to Jesus, all the nations of the earth will worship and honor you. You'll become as God, like it said to Eve. And then he said to Jesus, he took him to a highest point and said to him, throw yourself off here and test God to see if he'll catch you because the Bible says that he'll come to your rescue. In other words, did God really say this in his word? Can you really trust him? And Jesus replies each time with a quote from the Bible saying, I trust God, not you. You're a liar. You're a deceiver. And so Jesus conquers the devil. He conquers on our behalf and his victory then over the enemy becomes a victory that we also have received for ourselves. His victory is vicarious in the way that a football team's victory is vicarious for the fans that support that team. We talk about we and us. We beat Man United. We won the Premier League. you didn't. You sat and ate pies while they did all the hard work. Yes, but we won their victory vicarious the difference is that a football team's victory lasts what a week until the next match or a few months until the season starts again but Jesus victory stands for all time and so in Christ we have been restored now to those who have power over the enemy and over the darkness We don't reason with evil. We don't need to rationalize sin. Instead, we can look to Jesus, our hero, our champion. Because the Jesus who conquered Satan then now comes to us and comes to conquer you. He says, I've conquered the evil out there. Now I've come to conquer the evil in you. The arrogance in the human heart that would look to decide evil for itself. That would look to trust in its own strength and ability. I mean, you hear this so often on uh, on the news and on radio programs in this day and age can you believe in this day and age people die in this day and age whenever that statement is made you're listening to someone who believes the lie that human beings are great and because we're living in 2018 we should be greater than this it's not true it's the arrogance of man that thinks they can live without God trusting in themselves and their own ability for rescue there's a story I read this week of George Foreman, the, um, the boxer, sometimes just known as the mentor of the grill. Uh, but George Foreman, the, the two-time heavyweight champion of the world, he describes a time that he became a Christian when Jesus came to him. He'd just lost a fight. I think it was 1977. And he, he was in his dressing room with a pounding headache. And suddenly he said he felt like he was fighting for his life. He felt like he was close to death. And he writes, he says, I kept thinking. What You believe in God, why are you afraid to die? But I really didn't believe in God. He said he bargained with God in the dressing room, offering to devote his, his boxing prize money to charity. He said he heard a voice that said, I don't want your money, I want you. And instantly he found himself cast into the bleakest darkness he said he'd ever experienced. It was the saddest and most horrible place I'd ever seen. Then he said a giant hand plucked him into consciousness and George Foreman found himself in a locker room table surrounded by friends and staff members. He felt as as if he were physically filled with the presence of a dying Christ. George Foreman now is a pastor of a church in America and uh, an entrepreneur, inventor of the grill and a Christian. He became a Christian when Jesus came to him and said, I don't want your money, I want you. I haven't come to conquer world I've come to conquer you come to conquer your heart your life because it was when Jesus died that he not only defeated the powers of darkness in the world he also came to defeat the power of sin in your life you and I are sinners born separated from God destined to die because of our sin the payment the wages of sin is death we're all going to die as evidence that we are sinners. But Jesus' death on the cross was a death to forgive you for all your sin. To cancel the debt of sin that stood against you. And in his death, he not only put to display and to shame the principalities and power, the devil and his demons and his legions, and conquer them and say, I am here as hero and champion. He also came to to remove your sin from you, to offer forgiveness for you, to do what the shedding of blood of animals could never have done, to do what all the good works and good deeds in your life could never have done. He came to make you right with God so that you can be freed from the power of death and the fear of death that dominates so much of our life. Jesus is the conqueror of Satan and the conqueror of each one of us. We're going to respond this morning by breaking bread and by celebrating Jesus' death on the cross in our place. In a moment, the band are going to join me we'll, and then we'll take, make our way to the table. We'll break some bread and take some juice as an act of remembrance that Jesus' body was broken for you and me. His blood was shed for you and me. And that as he died, he defeated not just the devil, but he defeated the power of sin in our lives as well. Let's pray together.